This is episode 64, and I welcome everyone back. Over the past weeks, I've alluded to a challenging episode, and here it is. It's very important to note that this episode has content that includes stories that are challenging and some may find very difficult. It is not appropriate for listeners under the age of 18. There is help to prevent suicide and or suicide ideation by seeking professional help as well as many local and national resources, and I encourage others that need them to find them. This week is very difficult to share. At the same time, it is one of the reasons I started the podcast. I want to share my journey, all parts of it, because I hope that the things that I've experienced can help others. You have the background if you've been a listener from the start. And if you've joined the podcast later in the journey, here is a very brief backdrop. There is little doubt that I had some difficult times. Yes, being tossed in a trash can was a difficult time, yet clearly not something that I remember. And even though it was not an event that I can remember, it is a time that was more than lore. It is or was, reality and confirmed by many. I had difficult times in high school, constantly bullied due to race. I had a great Air Force career, yet tainted with racism. And I had difficulties in society, and I don't blame society. I grew up in America as an Asian American in a period where there were less than 1% within the population at large and then further grew up with what was called the Asian American myth. And I've shared why society emerged and changed over that period of time. And even though I wasn't fully aware that I was gay growing up, it was a time when there was far less acceptance than it is today. And for me, I likely had challenges in my own mind. Well, let me rephrase that. I did have challenges in my own mind regarding that as well. Through hindsight and certainly over this long period of time of my life, I shared that my unique form of PTSD started growing without my understanding of how to realize how my life was being impacted by the several periods of Purple Rain. There wasn't a time when I worked hard to dust myself off and look through the windshield. It wasn't always easy. Remember when I quoted the song from Queen, We Are the Champions? It goes something like, They knock me down, I get up again. I've paid my dues, time after time. I've done my sentence, but committed no crime. And bad mistakes, I've made a few. I've had my share of sand kicked in my face, but I've come through. Well, at some point, getting up and dusting yourself off is more and more difficult. This is one of those periods. I didn't really realize it then. It was the culmination of the many mortuary cases and the responsibilities that you have very specific to them that added to my struggles, and I wasn't aware of it. Certainly not then. There were cases that we had of young 
people who committed suicide. There were cases of murder. And there were cases where the body was not identifiable. There were also, in fact, two cases that were of gay service members. I can say unequivocally that my team did the right thing every time for each family. We made sure they had as much peace as we could provide and as much support that we could provide in those very first short periods of time. There were a couple of scenarios that were especially memorable. There was a case where a young airman was in a car crash out in the middle of nowhere, far from the base. The command post contacted me and told me the individual's name, and I immediately called the squadron commander, and I activated my team. It was getting close to dusk, and the location was easily three or four hours away by car, and we weren't sure it was wise to go out at that late at night. I briefed the wing commander and told him that I had to go there and had concern about the identity of the member because the name was given by the on-scene police officer and I suspected, I didn't know, I suspected something wasn't quite right. He said, just take my helicopter. What? As I would guess now and should have, should have expected then, there was a helicopter on alert at all times to take the commander to a missile site because they're far away from the base. Wow. Okay. I gathered Lieutenant Thomas and we flew out to the scene. I asked how they identified the individual. And the law enforcement officer on site said that there was a uniform that flew out of the window because of the accident and it had an individual's name tag on it. Well, that's not identification, and because of the accident, the individual was so horrifically burnt that the personal effects, like their wallet and ID, were completely gone. I immediately tried to call the squadron commander to let him know that the identification is not confirmed. No signal. I had to go up the road a little, up to a little crest. It was not far, maybe a quarter to a half mile to get a signal. And it wasn't a strong signal. All notifications were put on hold. The next day, we went to the local morgue, and the identity was not the same as the name on the uniform. The uniform was from a fellow squadron mate. And that was an incredibly difficult case. I had not had one where the remains were unidentifiable. As the story might go, by the time that they looked for the other gentleman, he was in the laundry room doing his laundry, and it would have been a horrible situation had it gone further on that very false identification. Another very memorable case was a case that was in Great Falls proper. It was an NCO going through a divorce, and they had a young child. As divorces go, it wasn't too friendly. There was word that there was a will, and that it was in a safe in the apartment. Because of the relationship with local authorities, we had access to the apartment early on and turned the case over 
to me and the Air Force Investigative Services. There was no will. There was no lockbox. We finally learned that the lockbox was stored in a closet. We looked. There was no lockbox. What we figured out shortly after the death, someone robbed the apartment and stole the lockbox. This often happens in every small town where when there's a death, people, vandals, will go to that location knowing that person is no longer there. And that was the case. Because the process after someone dies is for me and my team to go through the personal effects uh, for lots of different reasons. And we did find a handwritten will that looked like it was written likely as the divorce proceedings were going on. And it was very problematic. We turned it over to the legal office, and the legal office said that it met all the requirements for a holographic will in the state of Montana. And it was used to take care of the property and for the benefit of the young child. There was a huge legal fight. And with the amazing help of the base legal office, the case was solved. We also had one case where the final wishes of the deceased were to be cremated and scattered over a national park in the southwest part of the United States. We had to get approvals from the National Park Service and again took care of the final wishes. The last story I will share is that there was a case of a young man murdered in Japan. However, his family was from the Great Falls area. We agreed to take the case, and again, the family was grateful for the work that the team did because they didn't have to deal with the base that was so very far away. Each family deserved our full attention. There was always a unique situation because it involves people, and it is almost always sudden and we were able to provide service to enable the family to both grieve and take care of the personal issues. We handled everything up to a reception following the service on the base for those that had to be transported to a final resting place. Perhaps one of the very important tasks was we had to inspect the caskets to make sure that they were perfect. I always took my lieutenants with me for this very important work. We opened the casket, and near the hinge, there was a small sliver that was a blemish, and I had to reject the casket, and we had one flown in that next afternoon. The lieutenants were surprised that I didn't accept it, because when you closed the casket, you couldn't see this blemish. It was a lesson for them to show that the Air Force takes care of those who die on active duty and cherish their service by making sure that everything is perfect. So you can see that these cases took a great deal of time, and again, a case took precedence over the normal operation of the squadron. And I think you can see that from all that went on during this period of time, without the high-level team of my leaders and team members, it would not have been nearly as successful. You can see that we ensured that each case respected the service of the active duty member. After all, no matter the how 
or the why, each person died on active duty serving their nation. Some were very young airmen, and some were older NCOs. It was difficult, and I ensured my team had access to psychological support systems on the base following each case. I was the commander. I needed to ensure every family was taken care of and every team member was taken care of as well, and I did that as best I could. We were in the base chapel for a service before the burial for our family and the base personnel, and I was standing in the audience and felt myself being overcome with emotion. I stopped. I knew I had to be somber to do my job. I mentioned that a services squadron commander might have one or two cases at most during their two-year tenure as commander. We had more than 20. We had multiple deaths at once. I had to do inspections. I had to manage the cases with the mortuary and the families. And I had to navigate and keep my emotions in check and had to be resilient. At the same time, I'm human and a throwaway human at that. My depression sank deeper and deeper, and I had some very dark days. I remember there was a very specific day. It was autumn, and I went outside of my building one evening after everyone left to go to my car, and I knelt down on one knee, and I just couldn't hold it together. I really didn't know what to do. I had to dust myself off. The case wasn't done. The next day, I went to the base chaplain and had a conversation, and it did help just a little bit. There did come a time that I decided that I couldn't do more. I wrote letters to those that I had something to say. I put them in FedEx envelopes outside of my door at my home, and I was ready to end the pain because I had had enough. I had enough sand kicked in my face. I had enough purple rain. I needed to rest. I went to the shop at and picked up several, not one, not two, several containers of sleep aid. I took them to the counter and was visibly shaken in a state of distress. By chance, a senior leader's spouse was there, and she greeted me and yet said nothing else about my state of mind. The clerk also said nothing and sold me the product. I went home. I needed the pain to end. You may recall that I've said that many times that I would often think about my past and try to figure out all the whys. Why was I thrown away? Why was I beat up? Why, why, why? I had no answers, but I always had those flashbacks of the purple rain. And I realized, I realized then that my own mortuary case would have to be handled by my deputy who was a field grade officer equivalent, and my mortuary team, and I could not do it. I couldn't 
put it on them. I had to dust myself off one more time. Throughout the journey, every organization has an inspector general inspection, and that was no exception at Malmstrom. I've shared this throughout my entire career on my journey in the podcast, and from Red Horse, my first assignment, through my current assignment, every unit had some kind of an IG inspection. And as I look back through my record, my section never earned less than an excellent rating, so I'm pretty proud of that. Well, the 341st Services Squadron earned a rating of excellent, and three-quarters of the squadron, and this is really quite impressive, three-quarters of the squadron earned professional team awards. We were only one of two units across 19 squadrons with no findings. That's not an easy feat in a services squadron with so many targets. What was the best part? Well, after every inspection is over, and my military listeners can verify this, certainly, there is almost an immediate tasking from the wing commander's office to provide a plan for each finding in the inspection and how they're going to remedy it. I sent back a two-word reply. Negative response. It was a very good feeling. So, my time is coming to an end at Malmstrom. As the time got closer, I made request to delay my departure until the troops that I had deployed were home. That request was granted. To me, that was important to be the squadron commander that sent them and be the squadron commander when they came back. And I know that's not always possible. The timing that we knew was going to be within reason. When they came back, it was important to recognize that everyone did more. We recognized the work of those that were deployed because it was a far greater sacrifice to the individuals and their families. And yet, for those who stayed back at Malmstrom, we had to also work to cover our wartime mission that's located physically on our base. And so we made sure to recognize the entire squadron. Upon getting ready to leave an assignment, of course, there are events before departure. There are two gifts that remain incredibly meaningful to me. Remember that I said that the commander of security forces, Lieutenant Colonel Anderson, was a mentor to me during my time as commander because he was a commander for many different assignments and he took me under his wing. He made me an honorary security forces member with my own whistle and a large brass security forces badge. It's way too large to wear. It's 18 or 20 inches tall, and I'm sure that might have been intentional. A day before my departure, an NCO came into my office, and he said he doesn't give money when they pass the hat for a nominal gift for the leaving or departing commander. Rather, he said that I had been the most influential commander he had, and he wanted to make me a gift. It was a little handmade tractor with the squadron patches etched into it for hours and the entire wing, and a little plaque on it. 
That little tractor has always been in my living room for the past 23 years. I'm posting a photo, and it is so meaningful to me. Ending my tour at Malmstrom, my final rating said number one major in the group, and then number one major in the wing, and one of the top squadron commanders. And while that was good to see in writing, winning the Air Force U Bank Award and a number of major command awards was the greatest accomplishment, because it was about moving the unit forward, and excelling the mission, and recognizing. The amazing professionals that were assigned there. I'd say that in hindsight, it was an honor for sure to command the 341st Services Squadron. It was also very likely one of the most challenging periods in my professional life. Going into command, walking in for that first time. To receive the guide on and speak to the entire organization is something that you don't forget. I'm certainly sure, no matter how many times you've been a commander. The change of command that last day was well, a walk off the stage, out to my waiting car, with a sense of pride, resolve, and a bit of sadness. My first sergeant was standing at the door, and she gave me a hug as I left the building. We had become very good friends. I'm in my car. The temperature, by chance, that day was twenty below zero, and I look once in the rearview mirror. Then, I focused on looking through the windshield. My goal that first night was to stop at Effie Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming. I saw the turnoff for the base. It wasn't even dusk, and I kept on driving, driving on to the start of my next chapter as I continued my drive to Washington D.C. I'm ending this episode with this. It was a very difficult. Part of my story and my journey through life, because managing and figuring out how to navigate PTSD and depression is not easy, and many people manage it, and most likely better than me. It is my hope that by sharing my story, it might help others think about their own challenges. It's true that life isn't always easy. There are many ways to get help when you need it to learn how to navigate through turbulent water. With every purple rain, there are rainbows. I get that it's not always to see them. What I do know is that with help, you can get through those times that seem difficult and walk your way through the storm. Because as the song that I started this session with finishes. We are the champions of the world, and you too are a champion. You have strength, and you have courage. I wish they were the kinds of resources that are available today. Then, and you have to remember, not all disabilities are visible, 
And for visible ones, everyone would say, yes, here are options to help you. If you're living with PTSD or depression, it's no different. There are options to help you and do find those options. They're really becoming far more readily available. Let me just finish with this. In Shawshank Redemption, after escaping from prison, Andy Dufresne writes a letter to Red for when he gets out of prison. Well, Red does get out and finds the letter under that big tree in that pasture. It says in part, Remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Is right. With hope comes that rainbow, and with hope, those who know you will be looking out for you and have that chessboard waiting. I promise next week will be far more lighthearted, and then I will be arriving in Washington, D.C., and my next assignment. I think you'll be both surprised and learn that it opens more doors in my life than I ever could have imagined. Have a great week. Have courage. Be kind.